Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. Um, actually, rapper John last night came up to me as I was talking to people afterwards. He said, I told, he's like, you have to go home. You have a workshop you're coming to tomorrow. So, uh, he got me home and in bed on time last night so I could be here tonight. But, uh, my name's Ann. I'm an alcoholic. And it's really nice to be here tonight. And it's, uh, nice to see some friendly faces and some faces that I may not know yet. I'm very excited to get to know everybody this weekend. Um, it's funny, Dave and I, when, when Robert John had asked us to do this, and I said, we're, I'm doing this with who? And he said, Dave K. I just started cracking up because Dave and I got into so much trouble in early sobriety together. Um, I was actually telling a friend of mine at work today, I was like, it's almost analogous to like, you know, being in front of a lot of people after you guys were like fraternity brothers. You know, it's like you do crazy things in early sobriety, you do crazy things in the sober house. And then all of a sudden, you know, 10, 15 years later, you're up here talking about the steps because your whole life has changed. And at some point along the way, you actually started behaving like an adult. I'm not going to say I start thinking like an adult, but I at least show up for life like I'm an adult. And I can vouch for Dave. He's not an adult yet either. Neither am I. But we do act it. Um, and it's only because of these steps that we can even pretend. Um, <laughs> but uh, I started drinking when I was about nine. It was probably my first drink. And um, I, too, came from a house where my father drank a fair amount. And it was... Um, it was one of those households where I didn't, you know, I mean, you only know what you know when you're growing up. You don't realize that something's wrong um, or that something's off. But even by the time I was like eight or nine, I didn't really want to invite friends over. And um, I didn't want to invite friends over because it was the type of household where nothing was predictable. My father would drink, and sometimes he was the most loving man ever and just smother you with hugs and kisses, and you're like, seriously, get off of me. And then other times he would fly into violent rages, and anything in between was fair game. And, uh, from the time I was, I think I was six years old was the first time that he went to rehab and I didn't really know what rehab was. I just knew that my mother put me in the car. We drove someplace for a half hour and she said, your father's sick. He's in the hospital. We have to go visit him. And I said, okay, fine. Um, and we went to this place and I played with blocks while my mom was watching a video. You know, it was actually Fair Oaks and Summit. Um, and, uh, at some point we went over and we visited him and, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. And when he came out, I remember um, he wasn't at home at night anymore. And I remember that he would come home later and things were calmer. Things were not great, but things were calmer. And he was around a lot more, which was nice. But at the same time, you were like, what's wrong? And you were kind of waiting for the bomb to go off. And you were waiting for, you know, something to go awry. And after about, I now know, 90 days, we had this big banner at home with lots of homemade chocolate chip cookies and, you know, this big celebration, Dad has 90 days. And I was like, great, chocolate chip cookies, whatever, 90, who cares, Nine chocolate chip cookies, that's what I like. And um, I ate cookies, and then there, the shoe dropped. And a few months later, we had another chocolate chip cookie party. And the shoe dropped. A few months later, we had another chocolate chip cookie party. And um, I came to associate chocolate chip cookies with AA. Um, and I also started to notice and started to realize that in my household, 
there was always a constant um, walking on eggshells. There was always a constant um, fear that I didn't experience when I went to other people's houses. And um, it became normal for me. But now, years later in sobriety, I can look back and say, wow, that's what I did to other people when they're forced to live with me and I'm living in my disease. I literally can look at my childhood and be like, that is the devastating effect of alcoholism. You know, I watch my sister and brother, neither of them are alcoholics, but I watch them in their relationships. And um, I have great relationships with them today. But I watch like certain things that they do with their spouses. And they'll say to me, you know, like my sister was saying not that long ago, she got into a huge fight with her husband and her father, her husband thought something was wrong because 20 minutes later she came downstairs and was like, what do you want for dinner? And he was like, are you serious? We just got into an explosive argument and now, now you're pretending like nothing's wrong. And she's like, that's not weird, is it? I was like, not for us, it's not. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, mm -mm, that is a product of your upbringing. Like that is a product, you know, and I remember not thinking these things were strange, not thinking these things were off, that this was normal. And I had no idea really what was going on out there in the world. Um, so by the time I was about nine, my father wasn't really allowed to drink at home because he was supposed to be sober, but he wasn't really sober. Um, and I very quickly learned that my father wasn't supposed to drink, but there was alcohol around. So one day I came home and decided to try it. And I don't know why I decided to try it. There was no thought that went through my mind. There was no, I'm having a bad day. I'm nine. Come on. Like, how bad is your day at nine? You know, maybe you got picked third in kickball. But that was really the extent of the problem. Um, and so I went home. And my normal routine when I went home was I would go home and I would eat chunky soup, cheese, and crackers. And I'd watch DuckTales before I had to go to church and then uh, do my homework. And I'm sitting there. And I was like, you know, I'm going to try Budweiser. So I go to my refrigerator and I just grab a Budweiser. I'm nine. There's something wrong with that picture. You know, I'm literally grabbing a Budweiser and going and watching DuckTales by myself. And the thing that I remember so clearly that day was that DuckTales was hilarious. I don't know if anybody ever watched it, but Huey, Dewey, and Louie are just hilarious little characters. And Scrooge McDuck, I loved him. Um, the thing about it was, was that it was funnier that day. It was the funniest I had ever seen it. And the colors were brighter. It was as if I had di like high definition back in 1985, you know? And, and things just seemed lighter. And the show seemed longer. And the commercials didn't bother me. And that edge that I guess I walked around with so much was gone. And for me, a lot of times, I don't even know I have something until it's not there. That's when I notice when it comes back. And that's what alcohol did for me. And I was kind of like, ah, no wonder dad drinks. This stuff is good. You know, I was like, this is awesome. I didn't start drinking every day, but uh, I didn't even start drinking a lot. I was still like, you know, playing Foursquare at recess. So, you know, I proceeded to just go through my life. But my brother and sister, they were about seven and eight years older than I am, so they're having parties, and they're in high school, and I'm, like, running around like the cute little sister. They're like, here, have a beer. I'm like, okay. And um, I would start drinking at their parties, just have sips, and, you know, here and there. I think when I was 11, somebody taught me how to do a keg stand. I still don't really know how to do it, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. And what I noticed was it was at these parties that my brother and sister would have that I also felt really accepted, and I also felt like I belonged. 
and everything was just funnier. And these people were really cool, and they liked me, and they thought I was funny. And I got that acceptance that I always wanted. I got that acceptance that I didn't even know that I was missing. But I can tell you that once I experienced it with my brother and sister's friends, when I'm on the playground and I'm playing Foursquare, I felt out of I felt out of a loop. I felt like I was never enough. That was always something that always stuck with me, and I don't know why it stuck with me. It just did. Now, I can tell you that it was an incredible delusion that I was telling myself that for me, I was an alcoholic before I even drank because of the way my thinking went. I constantly told myself that I was less than, and I constantly had this 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 restlessness, irritability, and discontent. Nothing was ever right. Something was always missing. Um and I was among the more popular girls. I was the fastest runner. I was the one that the boys liked, yet I didn't fit in. I wasn't good enough. I had no friends. These are the things that I would tell myself, and these are the things that I believed about myself. So I learned from a very early age that it didn't matter what people told me on the outside because I believed what I believed, and that dictated exactly how I acted. So from even before I started drinking, I, I became the chameleon. I was, I was whoever you wanted me to be. I mean, I remember like crazy things when I was even just 10 years old. This girl that I was friends with, by the way, I hated her, but she was my best friend at the same time. Because why? Because she wanted to be my best friend. So I said, okay. And I was terrified of this girl. This girl woke me up one night with like a baseball bat in the middle of the night. And I was like, you're weird. Something's off. And why do you have a baseball bat? It's two o'clock in the morning. Yet the next day I'm acting like everything's fine because she's supposed to be my best friend. So I was never, ever living true to myself. I was never, ever living true to what Anne-Marie really wanted. I lived according to what you wanted because you were going to tell me how to behave. You were going to validate my existence. I was okay so long as you liked me, and I'll do whatever that takes. Now, add alcohol to that, and you have a very bad situation. And that was me when I was about 12. <laughs> I started drinking when I was 12, and in order to get drunks, uh, in order to get drinks, since I was 12, um, I started, you know, I was in seventh grade and I'm dating a sophomore in high school. I was in eighth grade, I started dating a junior in high school. I'm in ninth grade, I started dating a senior in high school. By the time I was done dating a senior in high school, I am a sophomore and I'm dating college guys. And the only reason I'm dating college guys is because they can afford to get me alcohol. I get to go to the parties that have the drinks. I get to be the cool one. I get to be accepted. And I get my ego fed this way. I get my existence fed this way. And again, that thread of never being true to Anne-Marie or never knowing who Anne-Marie really is started. I joke about it, but it's really true. It's, uh, you know, when I was 16, I was dating somebody who was really into hiking and they loved the outdoors and they lived in the Adirondacks. And so I spent, you know, the weekends hiking and I became this big hiking girl and I wore, you know, the long shorts and I had the hiking boots. I had the, I think the Timberlands and I went to J. Crew and I got all the good J. Crew sweaters and I started like hiking on the weekends and I was like, yeah, canoeing's awesome and I love outdoors and I want to camp and I want to do this. And we broke up and I was like, this sucks. Like... Camping, I don't know why anybody would camp. I sleep on rocks. I have a bed. Why would I go there? You know, it's like I'm scared of snakes. They're going to crawl in my sleeping bag. It just keeps me up all night. No, thank you. You know, I have a bed at home. I'll stay there. Um, and I went for a hike like a few months after that, and I was like, okay, I am walking to nowhere. Why? Why am I expending all this energy? I'm just going to sit down and smoke a cigarette, and everything will just be fine. 
you know, and my next boyfriend really liked rap. And so we like hung out in Brooklyn. We listened to Tupac. We're like really cool. We're really bad people, you know, like we're really like hood rats. Mind you, I grew up in Summit and Morristown, New Jersey. That's not exactly a bad neighborhood. Um, and I started wearing my hat backwards. I'm wearing jeans that are like 50 sizes too big for me. And we break up and I'm like, who's Tupac? What? What happens? Like, it was, there were things that I liked, but they're, they're not necessarily things that I was completely into. The point is, is that I literally became whoever I surrounded myself with. And I did the same thing with drinking. And the drinking was the one thing that got me to keep going to other groups also. Like, there were, when I came to AA, I found out that alcohol was a symptom for my disease. And I didn't understand that because I said, you don't understand, I can't stop drinking, and I'm not even 20 years old. And they said, it's just a symptom for your thinking. And I'm like, well, we all know my thinking is wrong, but I can't stop drinking. That's really my problem. And the longer I stayed here, the more I started to see that. Because what happened was, was that as I was progressing in my drinking, I was progressing in other symptoms. And by the time I was about 15, I was the same height I am now and about 35 pounds less. And I got hospitalized for anorexia. And for me, that was another symptom of my disease. And I find that for women, a lot of times eating disorders are symptoms of our disease as well. Um, and I got hospitalized for anorexia and I got put into this hospital. And this was, by the way, after um, an unsuccessful suicide attempt that I had been in the actual hospital for, for like six days, never told anybody I took pills. Never told anybody I took pills. Kept my mouth shut. I was like, if they're not figuring out, I'm not telling because I don't want to get in trouble. You know, I tried to kill myself. My concern is I might get in trouble. You know, something's off on that. One of the things about my disease is that, you know, Dave had read from the doctor's opinion that we do not, we, we cannot distinguish the true from the false. And that was me. I could not tell you what was real. I could not tell you what was false. It kept changing every day because it kept changing according to what my disease needed that day. And so I ended up in the psychiatric hospital. I am in a locked psychiatric hospital, like a locked ward. I can't get out. It is an eighth of the size of this room that I have to stay in for like 17 hours a day. The bedroom I'm allowed to sleep in has eight other people in it. Um, it's locked because they don't trust us, which I don't blame them. But uh, then we have to sit in this one room, and this is what I did for four months, and I wasn't allowed to eat. I just had to drink this like gaining weight thingy. And I had to drink it six times a day, and I was allowed like six ounces of that, and I had to measure it, and then I was allowed six ounces of juice. And at no point during this time did it strike me that something was really wrong. And I think that for me, that's also the hallmark of my disease. I have a conveniency in my mind to not recognize how bad things really are. I have this thing in my head that can make almost any situation normal. And when I'm sitting in the psychiatric hospital, while people are out there having fun doing normal life things, I'm thinking when I get out of here, I'm going to drop 15 pounds and then I'm going to go and I'm going to somehow get invited to a party and then I'm going to drink and I'm so excited. I'm going to get out during summer because my brother's home and he'll have alcohol and I'll be able to get wasted. And this is what I'm thinking about. Not that I'm away from home in a psych ward, not in high school. Something wrong with that.
So I, um, I leave the hospital and I find, uh, I do exactly what I said. I go home within a, like a month. I drop 15 pounds. I'm working at a day camp. I get invited to a few parties. I end up drunk every single time. And what happened at that point, every single time I drank, I got drunk. Every single time. There could be a million reasons why it was a bad idea to get drunk. I got drunk. And I would delude myself by thinking that I chose to get drunk. I would delude myself by thinking, I like getting drunk. When Dave read that part in terms of it says, you know, we essentially drink alcohol because we like the effect it produces, that's true. But the thing about the effect that it produces is that I never was able to stop there. You know, it's like I always overshot the mark. You know, I didn't necessarily start drinking and then three days later wake up in a blackout. But I would say... I'm going to have a couple of drinks tonight at this party. We're going to dance. We're going to have a good time, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, I hit that point. It's great for about five seconds. When I do a few more shots and I completely overshoot it, and I'm like way over there near the vomiting, near the passing out, just being a sloppy mess. And for women, it's different. For men, you guys are hilarious on Monday morning. You guys are the life of the party. Like, oh, my God, that was so funny. Dave, like, walked into a train. Did you see that? That was hilarious. You know, it's like for women, you get sloppy drunk, and they're like, oh, my God, look at her. She's an embarrassment. Look at her. She's a whore. Look at her. How bad is, like, oh, just stay away from her. She's bad news. And I got that reputation very early on. Because of my drinking, not necessarily because of anything else, but because of my drinking. Because every time I drank, I way overshot that mark. And I kept wondering, what is wrong with me? Because I kept looking at my brother and sister, and I'm like, they have the perfect life. They have this group of girlfriends. They have this group of boyfriends. They all hang out. They all drink. They all party. They all have a good time. They all wake up the next morning. No one gets called a whore. No one gets called sloppy. No one's not liked. Everybody likes each other still. Everybody's talking to each other. Everything's good. They're still all friends. They go out that night. They do it again. Why can't I have that? So anyway, make a long story short, I um, land right back in the hospital. doesn't take me long. Uh, it takes like, I don't know, five, six months. And I'm again down 30 pounds, <laughs> throw back in the hospital. And again, I'm there. And the number one thing I'm concerned about when I'm there on that night is the fact that I had accepted a prom date and I somehow need to tell this guy I can't go to the prom without telling him I'm in a psych ward. Okay. Because that's something that most 16 year olds deal with. And as I'm on the phone with him, I'm like on this payphone that you have to wait online for and you know everything like that. And I'm as I'm on the phone with him, the emergency like someone's going crazy and needs to be restrained bell is above me and it starts going off. And it's like, ah, ah, quiet room emergency, code red, code red. And I'm like, ah, I gotta go. And I hang up. Again, it doesn't strike me that there are people running by me, like arms running to go grab somebody to throw them in the cushioned room to like lock the door. This is where I have to stay. This is where I have lived. And my concern is, oh, my God, do you think Jason heard that? Really? Really? That's my thinking. That is how I think. And there's something wrong with that. If you can relate to it, I'm glad you're here. Because there's something wrong with you like there is with me. And, um, and so... 
I ended up being in the hospital, and by um, I was there, I think, that last time for like six months. And um, I was, I, I did things again, the selfishness, self-centeredness that we'll get into tomorrow that I didn't see until I step four and five was ruling my life. You know, it's one of the things that we'll talk a lot about tomorrow is that selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of my troubles. Well, I was still that tornado. I was still destroying my life, even though I didn't have alcohol in me at the time. I was still doing things like I had a pass for Christmas. It didn't dawn on me that my family really wanted to see me because I couldn't possibly believe that my family really loved me. I figured they showed up to see, they see me on Sunday night just because I was their kid sister. I was their daughter. You have to be here. You know, everything was about, you have to be here. You can't possibly care about me because the biggest thing was, was that I couldn't feel it. I literally would look into my mother's eyes and I would see pain and I couldn't feel it. I couldn't touch it. I was like, what is wrong with me? And, uh, so on Christmas, I had this pass where the whole family redid their entire Christmas plans to come to a psych hospital an hour away to spend four hours with their daughter. And I had a pass to go off ground so we could go to like the diner or something for dinner. And I decided or made some sort of fabulous decision that I was going to try and smoke a cigarette in my room in a hospital. Not a good idea. And totally got caught, and this and the past got snatched away five minutes before my mom showed up. And they wouldn't even let her in to see me. And so I destroyed a family holiday without me even drinking. And that was when I was 16, and that became the regular for the next four years. Every single event that happened in my family, somehow my disease ruined it. Um, I got out of the hospital and got sent to boarding school. And, um, you know, I didn't care at all where I was going. I said, I'll go whoever takes me first. I don't even need to go visit it. Fine. My mother sent me to an all-girl boarding school in Albany, New York. I was like, that's not funny. You know, that's not funny at all. And um, and so I got dropped off there in the middle of February. And uh, within two weeks, I found a couple people to make friends with. And I'm down in the dumpsters, and I'm smoking cigarettes, totally breaking the rules already. Did not learn my lesson. And within three weeks, I had a boyfriend who could buy me alcohol. And I proceeded to get drunk every weekend. And, um, I proceeded to, uh, hang out with people I didn't like. I never stopped to ask myself, do I even like this person to be friends with? That, that was never really a consideration. It was, do you like me? Because if you like me, sure, we're friends. That was my consideration. And, um, I started to really live the double and triple life as if it wasn't bad enough before. It really started to happen now because at school, I was, um, I was getting involved. I had to go to the health center all the time to make sure I kept weight on. Um, I found, uh, other substances besides alcohol, which gave me the munchies. So I kept the weight on no problem. And, um, then I was starting to get really involved in school. So I was doing things like volunteering and I started what we called the clowning ministry where we went to like, uh, nursing homes and we would entertain them and we would spend, you know, Saturdays and Sundays with them. And it was great. And I would go and I would do that. And then I would go back and I would entertain these substances and or drink and, you know, teach ninth graders how to drink properly, because that's a good thing to do to a 14 year old who just came and moved away from home and then go back to the school and start doing student council activities. So I literally was on one hand, 
I was the student council president volunteering my time, doing all these great things. And on the other hand, a drug dealer, the one with the fake ID, buying things and teaching all the younger kids and how to do things and breaking all the rules and sneaking out and getting away with it. And it took so much energy to keep them both up. It took so much energy. And the one that I really loved was being the one who was buying the alcohol and doing all that type of stuff. But I had to be the student council president and the volunteer and stuff like that in order for, in order for me to be accepted. I also had to do that in order for me to just keep up the image so I could keep doing what I really wanted to do. And um, at some point, what I really wanted to do might not necessarily have been what I wanted to do, but what I had to do. And Bill W. talks about that in his story where it says liquor ceased to be a luxury. It started to become a necessity. And that started to happen to me at a very early age. By the time I was a senior, this was now five years in high school, by the time I was a senior, um, the double life started to crash in. And I was trying so hard to hold it together. And I swear I grew like 15 arms just constantly plugging little holes that were leaking in like my ship, you know. And, um, and what started to happen was that alcohol started to literally sink my boat. Um, I remember the, um, what was it? The blizzard of 96 and in Albany, New York, we got three feet of snow and literally the whole city shut down. It was the, no one was allowed to go anywhere. Only emergency vehicles are on the road. And what does Amory do? She grabs her backpack, throws it on her back and marches a mile down the street to the liquor store. Cause of course the liquor store is open for a blizzard. And, um, I fill up the entire backpack with liquor and I had stolen my sister's License, who, by the way, I have blonde hair and brown eyes. She has blue eyes and brown hair. Don't look anything alike, but it worked. And um, I trudge three. I trudge a mile back to school, and I have tons of liquor. And I'm like, yeah. And of course, it's cheap liquor. It's like Boons and Mad Dog and just stuff that's gonna make you so sick. Um, but I am so excited. So we get back. I get back there, and um, everybody who knew I was going to get it was like, oh, let me have this. Let me have that. And I did what I was starting to do a lot, and that was I was starting to hold back stuff just for me and being like, oh, no, I only got four bottles. Oh, but I thought we gave you money for six. Yeah, but it wasn't on sale. I only got four because I took two and hid them for me later. And then we would drink the four. And one of that, that, night, that night I passed out in my um, friend's room, and I apparently came to at some point, got up, and walked where I thought was my bedroom. In boarding school, you don't lock doors. Everything's open. Um, and I, the door was locked. That should have been my first clue. Um, but I managed to break in. And it was a house parent's apartment. And I went in and I lied down on her couch and I fell asleep. And she woke up and she was like, what, are, what, get out. What are you doing here? And she has all the lights on and everything. And I don't remember this. I don't remember it at all. I remember... Drinking in Sherry's room, that's it. The next thing I remember is waking up in the health center with the dean of students looking at me. And I'm like, uh-oh, what happened? And apparently what I did was I got up, I went to this woman's house, I broke into her house, I'm lying on her couch thinking it's my room. I then start arguing with her that it is my room and to get out of my room. And I'm totally belligerent about it. And then they wake up the school nurse, whom, thank God, I'm actually very good friends with, who comes and gets me and puts me in the health center. She practically locks me in the health center because I'm so belligerent and so angry. And then I fall asleep. And I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, what happened? What happened? Why am I here? 
And the dean of students is looking at me, and she goes, how much did you drink? And of course, I was like, nothing. Why? What are you talking about? Nothing? She was like, don't lie to me. I was like, what? I don't, mm, can I have a minute? I had nothing to say. I had nothing to say. And I'm three weeks away from graduation, and the only thing that my family wants from me is just to get out of school. They just want me to get back together, get my stuff together. You know, they think I'm doing great because I'm actually in school. And I'm like, here I am about to get thrown out of school. And uh, the school nurse lied for me. And she said, I think she was sleepwalking. She's fine. And as she just looked at me, she goes, don't you ever do that again. I was like, okay, no problem. Think I did it again in the next three weeks? Yes. Of course I did it again the next three weeks. Why? Because I have what we call the mental obsession, which is Dave, what Dave described. And these are things that I didn't necessarily understand until somebody sat me down and took me through the big book. But I have a mind that will constantly tell me, no matter how humiliating the situation is that I find myself in because of drinking, no matter how devastated I might be, no matter how incomprehensible my demoralization to myself might be, like the book says, at some point my, mom, my mind is like, you can do it. Come on, let's go. It's not going to happen this time. Come on. You'll be fine. And I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go. You know, like a puppy dog. I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's go, disease. Come on. And uh, so um, I ended up actually graduating from high school by the skin of my teeth. And um, I got out, and within two days, I moved to Washington, D.C. for an internship, which was a fabulous idea for somebody who's drinking like me and uh, is not going to go home. Now, at this point, though, I had also raised enough flags in my family with respect to my drinking because I was, you know, I would go home on the weekends um, when I was in boarding school and I would drink there and I would get caught and I would drink, I would drink and drive all the time. My mother would lend me her car. I um, was so scared to be late and break curfew. If you met my mother, you would know why. But um, I, uh, <laughs> Rose has met my mother. <laughs> so... Um, I was like, okay, I have two hours to get drunk. So I would do things like, you know, walk into Belmar and go party hopping. And while I'm in Belmar and party hopping, because you can't bar hop when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, I would walk up and down the streets and wait to get invited in. And then I'd get invited in and I'd drink a few beers and I'd leave and I'd go to the next way and wait until I get invited in. You know, I mean, in some ways, it's almost a form of prostitution. I'm literally walking up and down the street waiting for somebody to call me up and give me free booze, you know? And I am walking up and down the street, and then I would be like, oh, I got to go. And I'd sprint home to my mother's house because I was never late for curfew. But my drinking was my priority. It wasn't a matter of not going out that night. It was a matter of how much time do I have, and I will achieve my objective. So um, I also started to notice now, of course, looking back, was that you know I, was, I had the physical craving. And in part of living the double life for me, actually, when I was at those parties, is that I would be at one party and my name would be Mary. And I would be a sophomore at UCLA who lived in Maryland, and I was up visiting my girlfriend. At the next party I went to, my name was Betsy. And I, you know, was engaged to be married, and I was from Tennessee, and I would throw on a southern accent. You know, I mean, I never was me. That was the awesome part about drinking, too. I didn't have to be Anne Marie anymore. So I loved it. I could be whoever I wanted to be, and you had no idea, so I could totally convince you of whatever I wanted to convince you of. And it was, it was, it was, for me, it was true freedom. And, um, 
So by the time I moved to D.C., my drinking had taken on such proportions that um, I could not go more than a day or two without drinking. And I was uh, I was doing whatever, again, I needed to do in order to drink, and I would drink the minute I got out of work. And um, down in D.C., I get out of work at like 4.30, right, because it's the government. It was great. So I get out at 4.30, and I would be done for the day, and by 4.40, I am at Bullfeathers, the happy hour bar across the street that does two-for-one. And once happy hour is over, I'd get on the metro, and I'd go to the next bar that did two-for-one. Or I'd go out for ladies' night, or I'd go to a softball game, or whatever, wherever I went, I went according to the alcohol. I went to things, and I thought it was just the greatest thing ever because to me, I was like, I'm meeting all these people. I don't know anybody. Alcohol was taking care of me. I had 100% arrived. Like, it's my first time living on my own. I'm not living under anybody's roof. I don't have any rules. I don't have a curfew. I'm obviously doing very well because I'm blacking out every night, you know, and literally I started to black out every night. And I could not tell you when it was coming, but I could tell you it was going to come. And by the end of my time in D.C., um, one of the other things I did in D.C. was that when people started to question my drinking, I just moved on to the next set of friends, the next set of people. I would just go meet more people. So my drinking could not catch up to me like that. Um, rather than trying to hide how I wanted to drink, I just drank with different people. And, um, I had, uh, I had hit a point in DC where everything started to crash in again. And this time it didn't take two years. It took eight weeks. It took eight weeks for me to have the boyfriend who lives at point A find out about the boyfriend that lives at point B who found out about, you know, the girls I'm hanging out at point C who found out about the other people I'm hanging out at point D because point D hates point A. And it just was, um, it was so confusing. I couldn't keep it straight, but I couldn't keep it straight because I was blacking out every night. And I could tell you I was going to black out, but I didn't know if it was after two drinks or after 30 drinks because at this point it was completely unpredictable. I knew it was coming, but I didn't know when. And the fact that I knew it was coming and I continued to drink is the insanity. And I could sit here and I could tell you that it was a choice and I could sit here and be like, I was 19 years old. I was just out having a good time. Of course, I was just choosing to drink. Everybody drinks like this. There was no choice about it. I was driven by alcohol. One of the words that it uses in the fourth step that, again, we'll talk about tomorrow, but it says, you know, we're driven by fears. Driven is when you're, you're acting with absolutely no thought. That was me. That I was driven by alcohol and my need for it. I was driven by the physical craving and the mental obsession kept telling me it was fine. And uh, I had absolutely no power over it at all. It was ruling my life. And what ended up happening was is that um, I had a last night in D.C. that was totally insane and ridiculous that ended basically with my mother banging on the door for like an hour with a police officer because I couldn't wake up. I didn't hear her. And then, of course, I wake up and I open the door. I'm like, what is your problem? And she's like, my, my problem? But I've been out here for like an hour trying to wake you up. And I'm like, oh, I just was sleeping. Because that's something that I know I did, and I'm sure other alcoholics did. How is it that my drinking and my humiliation and my embarrassment and my demoralization was your fault? How is it that my self-centered behavior and my dishonesty and my constantly thinking only of me 
and doing destructive things to you and having absolutely no courtesy for your time, your desires, or what you want to do, how is that your fault? But that was the beauty of the alcoholic mind. Everything was your fault. Nothing was my fault. And it had to be so I could keep drinking. And that's what I mean when I say I did anything I needed to do to keep drinking. And uh, then at that point, I did what every good alcoholic at the age of 19 does. I moved to New Orleans to keep drinking to go to college. And um, I uh, went to school down there. And the first night home, I had to be escorted home by the police officers because I was belligerently trying to break into a dorm that was on the wrong college campus. Like, it wasn't even my college. I was completely off the map. I was, I don't, I don't know where I was, but I definitely was not near home. And so this nice officer walked me back to my dorm and I went upstairs and I passed out and I did the same thing the next day. You know, I wasn't trying to break into a different dorm, but I definitely went out and got very, very drunk. And, um, I did that again every night. Maybe, maybe once in a while there was one or two nights that I didn't do that, but for the most part I did do it. And, um, and at this point, I was also back in the um, the constant dishonesty with myself. It was all about the drinking, and it was all about being the chameleon so you would like me and so you would accept me so I could keep drinking. I, you know, there was this boy that asked me out. I said, fine. I didn't find him attractive. I didn't like him. He kissed me. I ended up in a relationship for six months. Like, that's the type of thing that my alcoholic thinking and my alcoholic drinking would get me into situations of. I ended up breaking up with him, and I was just constantly doing things to other people. I would come home from drinking, and I would lie down on my roommate's bed and pass out there. She was she was horrified, absolutely horrified. She's like, my bed is my only home. I live in, like, a shoebox with you, and you sleep on my bed? And I'm like, what's your problem? What's the big deal? I just slept on the wrong bed. You know, I look at that now, and I'm like, wow, how inconsiderate are you? You know, it's like, of course, that's like her home, the bed, you know. I just did things, and I um, I started doing things like I would buy, borrow people's cars and drive drunk with those cars. I crashed other people's cars and would be like, I don't know what happened, sorry. And half the time, I really didn't know what happened. I just know that I it, the crash woke me up out of a blackout, you know. Um, I would end up lost down in Bourbon Street and borrow money from somebody so I could take a taxi home, and instead of taking a taxi home, I'd end up in the bar again because I just want one more drink. Just one more. Then I'll go take a taxi home. I'm like walking back, walking up the, from the French Quarter, which is, by the way, very far away from the school, at like 6 o'clock in the morning with one shoe. What happened to my shoe? I don't know. You know? I ended up getting hit by a car in a blackout and didn't remember for a year. I went to the dentist and told him I tripped over a tree trunk. And he was like, no, mm-mm, shattering four teeth, that's not a tree trunk. And I'm like, yes, it is. It absolutely is. And he's like, that's consistent with a car accident. I was like, well, I wasn't in a car, so I don't know what your problem is or where you're getting your information. He's a doctor. You know, that's where he's getting his information. I am in a blackout. I have no idea what happened. It took me years to remember that. And um, people would be like, you know, friends might be like, okay, we're going to go right. And I'm like, okay. And I just start running left. I, I, the only way a lot of times I get home on my own two feet is if I ran. Because the faster I was moving, the more likely I was to stay vertical, you know. Um, and I just did crazy, crazy things. And I remember that at the very, very end, in I think it was March of 2000, uh, March of 1997, I was, um, a number of people that I was hanging out with 
was saying to me, we do not want to hang out with you anymore. Your drinking is too much. Your drinking is embarrassing. Your drinking is a liability for us. We don't have a good time when we go out with you. And I was, I was, the more I drank, the more belligerent I became. And at some point I looked at myself at a picture somebody had taken at a party the night before. And when I looked at that picture, I was looking in the eyes of my father. And it wasn't that my dad and I look alike. It was that my eyes were different. And that was, he was the only person I literally could point to that when he put alcohol in his body, his entire face changes. His eyes change. He becomes a different person. I, for years, I was like, I don't know who Dr. Jekyll is. I don't know who Mr. Hyde is. But if they're two different people, that was my dad. And when I looked in that picture, that was me. I was like, who is this? I did not, I did not even look like myself. If I hadn't realized that I was wearing that the night before, I probably would have told you it was somebody else. But it was me. And even that devastating fact did not stop me from drinking. I saw the picture and somebody said to me, you should go to AA. And I was like, fine, I'll go to AA. They dropped me off at AA while they went to go get high. I was sat in an AA meeting thinking about them going to get high. I was like, that's not very nice. But while I was at that AA meeting, I was just like, and it was like in a little kindergarten room and I'm sitting on this like tiny, tiny chair. And I remember I'm, they, they looked at me cause they obviously, now I know that they looked at me cause I didn't belong. Meaning I was new. And, uh, they looked at me and they said, do you want to introduce yourself? And I was like, no. They're like, well, what's your name? I was like, why? They're like, because you know, you're sitting here with all of us and we just usually introduce ourselves. I'm like, I don't want to. They're like, okay, you just sit back, relax and listen. I'm like, fine. It was very hostile. It was like, get away from me. I have nothing to say to you. And then I started listening to a couple of people and the room was going around the room. It was like celebrations. They did the chip system down there. So a lot of people got chips and some people were getting, you know, other things and they did announcements and somebody spoke. And then, then we went around the room and introduced ourselves. And when it got to me, I only said, just like Dave said, I only said I was an alcoholic because I didn't want to leave the meeting. <laughs> so that was my intention. They come to me and I say, my name's Amory. I'm an Elka. And I burst out into tears and I start sobbing. And I know now that the reason I started sobbing was because it was really the first time I was telling the truth. That for the first time, I actually could say what was wrong with me. For the first time, somebody was about to tell me what was truly wrong with me. No matter how many hospitals I had been in, I was on like therapist number 25. You know, it was like the amount of antidepressants that they put me on when I was a kid. Nothing struck me until that moment. And even then, I didn't stay sober. I left. I went home. The next day, I woke up. I went to class for like the first time in nine months. And uh, that night, I was drinking. A few weeks later, I was like, you're right. I have to go back. I go back to AA. I go to a couple of meetings. I would go to the meeting and come home and drink. Sometimes I would come home and call somebody. But a lot of times, I'd come home and drink. And by the time I was done with that semester, it was the last few, um, it was the last weekend of that semester and my mother had come down to visit me. And my mom was staying in a hotel room down the street from me and she asked me, she said, did you get, you know, are you in good shape for your finals? And I said, um, actually, no, I have five classes. Uh, technically I'm registered for one. I don't think I have to take the final because I've never gone because I thought I dropped it even though I didn't. And, um, so I really have four classes and I have two papers and two exams and they're all next week and I haven't opened anything. 
And she said, okay, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to redo the whole day. We're going to get you a laptop computer. This is before everybody had one. We're going to rent you one. You're going to come to the hotel room. You'll get your work done. It'll be great. I'll help you, whatever. And I was like, oh, all right, sure, that'll be great. Thank you, Mom. So we spend our whole day looking for a laptop computer to rent. We get the laptop. We go back to her hotel. We uh, sit down, and then she's like, let's go have dinner. We go have dinner. We're at dinner, and she's like, you know, we're in New Orleans. It's 18 to drink. She was like, would you like a glass of wine with dinner? My mother is very proper. So she literally was like, honey, it's okay if you would like to have a glass of wine. I was like, thank you, Mom. She's trying to treat me like an adult. Maybe if I acted like an adult, I would have earned it. But no, no, no. So I have a glass of wine. I did not know about the physical craving at the time. But the craving kicked in. I had two glasses of wine. Then mom's done with dinner. She's like, okay, honey, it's time to go back to the hotel. You need to get some work done. I'm like, okay, mom. We go back to the hotel. I go downstairs to have a cigarette. And it's one of the few times in my story I literally can point to, I'm going downstairs to have a cigarette. I have every intention of having a cigarette. I have no intention of doing anything else. I'm going to go smoke. That was at 9.45. I stumbled back into the room at 5.15 in the morning after I had been at the bar. I was at the piano bar. I was singing. I don't sing. I'm a very bad singer. I'm singing at the piano bar. Over there, you think my name is Mary. Over there, you think my name is Stacy. Behind me, my name is Jack. You know, I'm from like three different states. I am here on a business trip. I'm here on college. I am like all over the place. I am having the time of my life doing what I'd like to do best, get out of me, drink, 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 end up in a car, going somewhere, I don't know, end up back at the hotel, come back, stumble upstairs. Mom wakes me up like 45 minutes later. And when she wakes me up, she looks in my eyes, she goes, she wakes me up, and I look at her and I'm like, oh, God. And she looks at me, she goes, did you get a lot of work done? And she has so much love and hope in her eyes. And for whatever reason, God presented a window of willingness. And I said, Mom, I have a problem drinking. I got no work done. And she said, why don't you get up? We'll go have breakfast. We go have breakfast. I found out a lot of things about my father I never knew. I never knew he actually tried to commit suicide. I never knew that the two of us drank the same exact way. I never knew that the effect upon alcohol that she saw on my dad was the same effect on me. I never knew any of that. I learned all of that. I gained a lot of knowledge at breakfast. I had a lot of identification. She had been an Al-Anon at that point. You know, in her lifetime, she had been there for 12 years. She was like a black belt in Al-Anon. Okay, maybe a brown belt because the next sentence wouldn't have been from a black belt. She said, uh, she said, well, you're already registered for school. Uh, she said, you're already registered for summer school. Why don't you just get through finals and we'll deal with this when you get home? I said, okay. I go and do my final exams, but somehow I managed to pass, probably because the number one class I'm taking is juvenile delinquency, so I understood it, and uh, I passed, and I come home to New Jersey, and she literally sits me down the first night, she goes, okay, so let's talk about what you want to do, do you want to go to AA, do you want to go to rehab, and I looked at her, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, and she was like, but you said, and I was like, I, I was overreacting, that was just a bad night, and she's like, but, and I was like, but nothing, can I have the keys, I, I told Kim I'd pick her up in 10 minutes. And she was like, oh, all right, sure. So she gives me the keys. And um, my mom was a very big one in terms of, you know, what you want in life you need to earn. All right, if you want a car, you're going to go to work and you're going to get money and you're going to buy yourself a car. That's how you're going to get a car. I'm not buying you a car. It was about four years after I got my license. I still didn't have a car. And so <laughs> and, uh, she had said to me, I don't know how I'm going to get you to summer school because I do not want to give you my car every day of the week. 
So I'm going to buy you a cheap car. And I said, okay, great. She goes, we'll go shopping tomorrow. I said, okay, good. Can I have the keys? I got to go pick up Kim. She said, sure. So I go, I pick up Kim. I have a water bottle with me. I filled it with vodka. I drank the water bottle all night. We went to the movies. We didn't like go out, go out. Went to the movies. I drank one of those like plastic water bottles, not like the Poland Spring bottles, but like the old fashioned like water bottles that you used to get for free at things. I drank like, uh, one of the, one of those that was filled with vodka. She had no idea I was drinking and I crashed the car on the way home. And, uh, I ended up crashing the car like, you know, the type of car that you see on the middle school lawns. Like it flipped three and a half times. No seatbelt. No nothing. And, um, I crawled out of the car and she had crawled out of the car. It was upside down. And, um, it was thought maybe number 10 to ask her if she was okay. My first thought was, oh my God, I'm in so much trouble. My second thought was, holy crap, do I have anything in the car I'm going to get in trouble for? My third thought was, do not call my mother. Whatever you do, do not call my mother. And I kept going down the list. And at some point I looked over at her and she has a bloody nose. I was like, are you okay? I can't even tell you. I stopped to listen to the answer. That's how self-absorbed I was. That's how my disease affects me. That's the type of thinking of why I stay here. It does not matter that I haven't drank in 15 years. What matters is that I still stay here so I don't start thinking like that. Because that type of thinking, I will drink and I will kill somebody the next time I'm in the car with them. Because they don't know I'm drinking. I drink out of straight water bottles. That last summer, I drank morning, noon, and night. I literally woke up. I drank a, I'd like to say the family size bottle of Bacardi, like the big kinds. You know, I literally drank Diet Coke and Bacardi. And by the end of the summer, I was done with the Diet Coke. We just did straight Bacardi. I put it right into a water bottle and I just walked around with it. Um, my mother came to the accident scene. I had absolutely no compassion or sympathy for how that was going to affect her. And oh, by the way, it was her birthday because I'm an alcoholic and like to do things like that on people's birthdays. And, um, I, uh, the next day, I was kind of like, well, you know, we ended up in the hospital. And my mom was asking me, she was like, how much did you drink? Where did you go? What did you do? And I was just like, I, I can't even speak. I don't even know. I don't, I don't know what lie to tell you. So I'm just not going to tell you anything. That was my response. And um, I ended up at uh, living down at the shore by myself in her house where I would literally wake up. I'd start drinking, I'd get on my bike, I'd bike 14 miles to school, and I would sit in class that was called Substance Abuse Population, and I also sat in another class that was called Crisis Intervention, and one day I passed out in Crisis Intervention became a, a case study, literally, for the class. They were trying to wake me up. I was drunk at 10 o'clock in the morning, and they tried to intervene because it was a crisis. And uh, so that was embarrassing, but I drove drunk on my bicycle again the next day, and um, this is what I did. And I worked at a dry cleaner so I could have money for, for alcohol. And that was, that was perfectly fine with me. That was a perfectly fine life. That's what I wanted to do. This was good. And I literally had nobody in my life. Nobody spoke to me. My family didn't want anything to do with me. I had no friends. Um, I had one boyfriend who was a hostage. And by the end of that week, by the end of that summer, even he broke up with me. And, um, the state of New Jersey said I had to get two clean drug tests and they would be very good to me because I was only, you know, it was my only first, my first DWI. And I couldn't get a drug clean, one clean drug test, let alone two clean drug tests. And I wasn't doing drugs. So all I had to do was not drink for like 12, 24 hours. And I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I would wake up delusional. 
I would literally be in the middle of telling a story. Like my mind started to click in and started to click out. I would be in the middle of a conversation with somebody on the phone and apparently I'd be in a blackout and I'd come back to you and they'd be like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're in the CIA? And I'm like, what? <laughs> what did I tell you? <laughs> but do I admit like what, what? I'm not really in the CIA. No, I just start asking questions and start continuing the lie. Like I literally am like, you know, they're like, what are you saying? You're in the CIA. And I come to you and I'm like, what do you mean? I was what? well, I'm just, you can't tell anybody. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're in the CIA and your name is Maggie. And I'm like, Maggie, why is my name Maggie? You know, and then I would just continue with the lie. I never knew how to take responsibility for anything. And I blamed everything my entire life. I blamed my entire drinking on my childhood. I blamed it all on things that happened to me. I blamed it on being from an alcoholic home. I blamed it on being abused. I blamed it on things that happened to me when I was out there drinking. I never once turned around and was like, wow, I am a jerk when I drink. Never once. It was all justified. If you grew up in my house, you'd drink too. If what happened to me happened to you, you'd drink too. If you were this type of whatever, you would drink too. And it was like, I had no idea there was another way of life. And by the time uh, July 24th, 1997 rolled around, I went to the judge. And the judge was like, you can get one clean drug test. And uh, I was like, you're right. And he said, do you want to go to jail or do you want to go to rehab? And I was kind of standing there thinking about it. And it's that type of question, you know, where it's like in the first step in the big book, it talks about... <laughs> Do you want to die an alcoholic death or do you want to live on a spiritual basis? Only alcoholics are like, let me smoke a cigarette and I'll get back to you. You know, I'm not really sure. And most normal people would be like, I will do whatever I have to do not to die. You know, and I was just like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. And again, it was the fear and trying to make my brother happy because I literally saw him get up and I was like, he's going to kill me. I'll go to rehab. And so I went to rehab, and it was during that two-week period there that that boyfriend broke up with me, and that boyfriend was was everything to me at that point, everything. And I ended up going to rehab. And when I was in rehab, and, and I'm a big fan of rehab for this reason, because for me what it gave me was I literally got to experience that I didn't have to drink for a day. I did not know what it was like to go from when you wake up to when you go to sleep. And, oh, by the way, you go to sleep voluntarily. I didn't know what that felt like. I hadn't done that since I was like eight, you know. I didn't know what that felt like. I didn't know that that was possible. And what I've come to understand in this program is that this is a program of experience. This big book, I can have all the knowledge in the world of this big book. I can tell you page 63 is where the third step prayer is. I can tell you on page 76 we talk about step seven. I can tell you, you know, there are four columns of the fourth step, and this is what you're supposed to do, and that's how you're supposed to do it, and don't, you know, don't put a check there. Make sure you put a check closer to the right. I can tell you all of that. We are all very smart people. That's part of our problem. You know, we're all very smart, but this book is meant to transmit an experience. I do not comprehend until I experience it. My comprehension and my relationship with God is dependent upon a knowledge followed by experience. Once I have the experience, it becomes true. And my experience might be a little different from yours, so my truth might be a little different from your truth. But it's my truth. And this program 
is the program that for the first time I could get there. I could actually consider, do I want to be friends with you? It wasn't just a consideration of, well, if you want to be my friend, sure, let's go. It was, do I want to do this in life also? And it all started for me from understanding this disease because one of the things it talks about in the book is it talks about how, you know, we could wish to be philosophical, we could wish to be, um, I wish I knew the page number, somebody, do you know the page number? We could be, wish to be philosophical, um, yep, yep, here we go, page 44. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcohol, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such code and morals or such code and philosophies did not save us no matter how hard we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all of our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by our will, were insufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was my dilemma. And the thing about it was for me was that even though I grew up in a house of active alcoholism. And even though I had a lot of fear and I, it was kind of, you know, I don't want to say a messed up upbringing, but it kind of was, you know, there were things that were not necessarily healthy or normal. Um, but the fact of the matter was, was that I knew, you know, I knew what was right. I knew what was wrong. I was taught that as a kid, I was taught like, you know, you shouldn't gossip about people. I was taught you really shouldn't slander people. I was taught be nice. I was taught do unto others as you would have done to you. Dude, if that last one were in effect when I was drinking, I oh, I don't even want to know the type of consequences I'd be living. I knew in my head how to behave. The problem was that I couldn't do it. And so what happened for me was that I started, you know, I started off like everybody does normal, like in terms of like even, where it was like my beliefs and my behavior, they were even. I could act according to my beliefs. And once my disease started to take hold, my beliefs getting a little higher, my behavior was getting a little lower, and I was living like this, where there was at least five miles between the two. And all of that space in between was filled with self-hatred. All of that space in between was filled with doubt. All of that space in between was filled with fear and an impossibility. There is no way life is ever going to be different. I can't possibly do it. Look at my behavior. Look how much I absolutely suck. I wake up today saying I'm not going to drink. By the end of the day, I'm drunk. What kind of person does that? I had no concept that I was sick. In fact, when people said you're sick, I really thought I was a cop-out. For about two years in AI, I was like, yeah, 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 total cop-out. Mm-hmm, yep, got a disease, got it, check, moving on now. But really in my head, I was like, no, I'm just really a bad person. That whole saying of like, we're not bad, trying to, we're not bad people trying to get good. I was like, mm, I am. Maybe you're not, but I am. And I would hold myself to this standard that it was like, to say I'm sick is a cop-out. That is an incredible ego, isn't it? How many alcoholics are there? There's like two million, right? There's like two million, and I'm the one who's possibly a bad person. You know? That's how arrogant I am. Arrogance. It's my sponsor over there. Um, so that's how arrogant I am. And that's the that was the whole thing, was that it was... I went through the big book at about a year and a half sober when Dave and I were um, living together in the sober house. 
And my life started to change. And I started to understand that I had this physical craving and that I had a mental obsession. I had a spiritual malady. And those were the three components of the first step. And I had all of them. And I was an alcoholic. And I proceeded through the steps with that. And when I got to step two and they said, is God everything or is God nothing? I said, he's everything. Check. Move along. Step three. You know, and this is, this is what I did. It was my first time through the book and I learned a lot and I gained a lot of knowledge and I had a great experience with it. But what happened to me was that about seven years sober, I hit another bottom and I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what was wrong. What I will tell you is that God showed it to me as he usually does. And that was, I was standing in, um, it had been probably about a year at that point, And I had every material promise in this program that you'd ever want. I had come true. And they all happened after about within two years after getting through my ninth step and continuing at 10, 11 and 12. And I was working with a lot of women and life was good. Life was really good. There was nothing wrong. I was getting married to who, um, to somebody I thought was absolutely perfect. I got the most perfect job. I went back to college and I actually graduated from college. Um, and I did well in college. And, um, not only did I get the perfect job, but I got my dream job. And I, um, moved out of the house. And I, after I got married, I got to move to London because my new husband was now going to graduate school in London. And, um, I'm in London and it had been, I had been there two months and my stepfather died. So I came home and I was with my mom. And, um, I go back to London and I end up engaging in a conversation with a woman on a bus because this is how God likes to talk to me. It's like randomness. So I end up talking to this woman on a bus who has pink hair and, um, she tells me she's an AA and she starts telling me how great American sobriety is. And I'm like, you're right. We are. And she says, you know, I just love your sobriety. I was like, you should, because we rock. And, um, I said, you know, since you're an AA and since you think I'm great, because I'm from America and I'm an AA, um, I'm going to tell you, you know, I just don't feel right lately. Like, you know, just something seems off. I don't really know what's wrong. It just something seems off. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, you know, I mean, I did just get married. I graduated from, I graduated from college. I got engaged, planned a wedding. I was in the perfect job. I left that job so I could get married. And then I moved here and I moved here and I got here and I moved. Um, I had to go home for a month because my stepfather died. And then I came back and I haven't really settled in. I haven't really found a job. So, you know, things are off. Things are off. And everybody had been saying to me, you just moved. You just got married. You just graduated from college. All these things that were going on outside of me. And every time they said it, it just wasn't ringing true. And I was like, I don't know what you're, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong and nothing's hitting me. And this woman looks at me and she goes, do you think you're going to drink today? And I was like, okay, now I'm annoyed because obviously you weren't listening. I just told you my stepfather died. I told you I was close to him. I told you I had to quit my job. I told you this. And she goes, no, I'm asking you, do you think you're going to drink today? And over in London, of course, I pick a home group that's clear across the city. So it takes me like an hour and a half to get there on the bus. And in London, when you, all the meetings are an hour and a half. And when you join to that particular home group, you were required to get there two hours early. So my home group night was literally eight hours long. Because after home group, then everybody had to go to McDonald's because we all had coffee and chicken McNuggets or whatever. And we all socialized. And then we all got on our respective buses and tubes and we all went home. So I'm literally after eight hours. And she goes, do you think you're going to drink today? And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to drink today. Okay, I want this conversation to end now because obviously you don't know anything. And this is what's going through my head. And um, 
And she goes, hmm, why not? And I was like, well, obviously, because I just came from like a freaking eight-hour extravaganza meeting. I just worked with two newcomers. I just, you know, it was a big book meeting, so I read the big book. I talked to three sponsees today, and now I'm talking to you. And she goes, huh, you're really powerful for someone who's supposed to be powerless. And I was like, what? And I don't know what she said, except I know it was the first time it hit. And it hit real hard in the gut. And I said, can I have your number? So she said, sure. And I called her. And she told me I had to, if I wanted to work with her, I had to do things that most people are going to think I'm insane for actually doing. But she said, stop sharing in meetings, stop sponsoring, stop praying. Basically, stop doing everything AA tells you to do. And I was like, and I'm not going to do that. And she goes, why not? What do you think is going to happen? And I started crying. I said, I never want to go back to that psych hospital again. She goes, is that what you think is going to happen? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, then you have a major first step problem. And I had no idea what she was talking about. But I said to her, my mother's coming next week for Christmas. She just lost her husband. I'll call you back after the new year. I'm not doing this right now. (laughs) And I actually called her back on January 2nd. And I started working with her. And what I started to see was that my ego had rebuilt itself. That at some point I started to do the steps for, I was working the steps so I would get better. I was not working the steps so God could make me better. I had completely worked God out of the equation. All of the steps after step one have God in it. (laughs) Somehow I missed that. You know, somehow it became about Anne-Marie doing the right fourth step. It came about, you know, the columns. It came about, it became about the the words on the page and the words on the page were going to save me. But it was Anne-Marie's application of the words on the page. It wasn't, it was the motive behind the motive is what it was. I'm going to do this so I save me. I gained a lot of power just from that. I had forgotten that I had a physical craving and a mental obsession. I had forgotten that I had lost the ability to choose whether I drink or not. The book talks about that. The book says that very clearly in a lot of different places. And a lot of times we forget that. And that's probably, everybody has a pet peeve meetings. My pet peeve is when people are like, I choose not to drink today. I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. If you are an alcoholic, no, you don't. It says it. Page 34, where it says, we are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Just because I had been sober for seven years didn't mean I got the choice back somehow. There what it, there it, I still don't have the choice of 15 years sober. My sobriety is dependent upon my relationship with God. My sobriety is dependent upon my spiritual basis. I get a daily reprieve, but my truth still remains that when you add alcohol to this body, a phenomena of craving, which really just means something that can't be explained, happens inside of me where I crave more. Somebody one time told me that it's that an enzyme in the liver that I have that other people don't have. I don't know. I totally got with the explanation. It made sense to me at the time. But I have had experiences in my life where even in sobriety, I've seen that my body is different than somebody else's body who's non-alcoholic. My sister and I were on the same medication one time, and we were told that it was processed through your liver. 
I had withdrawals coming off this medication. She did not. We have different livers. She's not an alcoholic. I am. When you add alcohol, something unexplainable happens to me. But the only way that I stop once you add it is something outside of myself has to stop me. It does not matter how good of a reason I have not to drink. The night my mother got married again, she got remarried to a wonderful man named Ken. The one thing she asked of me, please don't drink. Please, please don't drink. No problem. Not going to ruin your day, Mom. It's going to be fine. At the rehearsal dinner, I was in the bathroom throwing up because I had drank so much and just in such a short period of time that her best friend had to leave her rehearsal dinner in order to take me home so I stopped ruining the evening for my mom. And my mom, the night before her wedding, she has to be in a hotel room with me because she's worried I'm going to sneak out and go drink. Because that's what happens when I was like, I'm only going to have one drink, Mom. It's fine. I am not that much of a jerk. You know, I'm really not. I am not that evil where I chose to do that to her. I had this thing in my head, the mental twist, that says you can have just one. I literally intended just to have one. I was not going to have more than one. It's a celebration. I'm puking. How did that happen? The physical craving, that's how that happens. That's part of what makes me sick. And a lot of times when I work with women who are like me, so incredibly egotistical that it's like, okay, fine, yeah, maybe you're sick trying to get better, but I'm bad trying to get good. I'm like, can you explain the phenomena of craving if you have it? Because if you can explain it, you might not have it. But once you add alcohol to me, I can't stop unless something outside of me stops me. Something greater than me has to stop me. My body might shut down. It might be a car. It might be the cops. It might be, you know, whatever. But it's not Amory choosing to be like, I'm not going to have any more than that. And then no matter what happens with the insanity, um, I can want to not drink all I want. That desire is not enough. That's what kills me sometimes, that the desire not to drink. Like, oh, it's just, so long as you have a, people. That was second pet peeve right here. Second pet peeve is when people come in and say they don't want it enough. You know how bad I wanted it? How bad I wanted to not be this way anymore? I wanted it so bad that I consciously tried to kill myself numerous times. I just wanted it to stop. I wanted it bad enough, yet I went to meetings for six months and drank every minute, drank the minute I got home from the meeting. Why? Because I'm sick. I am sick. And the other, my other, one of my most favorite lines in the whole book is that it talks about that the baffling feature of alcoholism, it's on page 34, where it says, yet we found it was impossible. Okay? Because it talks that many of us have plenty of character. We are fantastic people as a whole. If you have not been in AA long enough to know that, stick around. We are hilarious. We're fun. We're intelligent. We're great people. Okay? We have plenty of character. Yet, um, there, and there was a tremendous urge for us to stop drinking forever. Yet we found it impossible. You hear a lot, disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And my sponsor has a great dictionary, so I know she'll be able to define all those things for you. But here it talks about that it says this baffling feature of alcoholism. This is what it is. It is the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. 
That is the baffling feature of our mental obsession. No matter how badly I want to not drink, no matter how necessary it is for me to not drink, I do it anyway. And I have no power in stopping that. And the necessity of the steps comes in the fact that I need a relationship with a higher power to keep me sober because I am powerless. And that is how I am powerless. And just the last thing I want to touch on for step one is on page 52, the bedevilments. It talks about, you know, my sponsor in London had told me, you know, I had read that the lack of power, that was our dilemma. She made me write in there and continues to be. Lack of power is only a problem for me when I don't accept that that's my problem. It's when I want more power. And on the paragraph on page 52, it says we had asked ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change, uh, to change our point of view. We have been having trouble with personal relationships. We could not control our emotional nature. We were prey to misery and depression. We could make, uh, we couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. That describes my condition in AA without a God. That's my spiritual malady. That's how my life becomes unmanageable. And when my life starts to become unmanageable because I'm blocked by these things, when my life starts to become unmanageable because my spirituality is up, when my life starts to become unmanageable, that's when I'm in danger of the physical craving and the mental obsession kicking in. I should say the mental obsession. Because that's the other thing, is that the mental obsession happens before the drink. The physical craving happens after the drink. It's very simple stuff, but somehow, for at least my experience in meetings, we get them mixed up sometimes. And the spiritual malady happens before and after. So my job in AA is to do the rest of the steps to treat the spiritual, well, to do the rest of the steps to become open to God coming in to treat my spiritual malady and protect me from a drink. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. So I'm really glad that um, we are here tonight. I am so excited to be doing this with Dave. And um, I'll turn it back over to Robert Chun. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.